0: It's good to be with you this morning, and I want to give a thank you to the worship team uh, especially, uh, but also to Matt in particular for leading this morning. Uh, I appreciate the fact that we belong to a church that has multiple men who can lead and uh, step up in various ways, and the thing that I appreciate the most actually about our brother Matt, who uh, of course will be joining as an elder here soon as well is that when he leads, whether it's his home or whether it's the household of God in worship, he does so with joy. And joy is something that we all need more of as a church family and as followers of Christ. And so, that's why we find ourselves in the book of Philippians. Uh, This is the series that we've been working through whenever we take a break from the gospel of Mark. Of course, if you were with us two weeks ago, we finished the gospel of Mark, the gospel of the kingdom series. And so we find ourselves back in the book of Philippians for this week and also for next week as well. So go ahead and open in your Bibles, if you haven't already, to Philippians chapter 2. We'll be in verses 19 through 30. If you don't have a Bible with you or a device that has a Bible app, you're welcome to use the Bibles in the pew in front of you. If you don't own a copy of God's Word, you can take that and that can be yours from this day forward, provided you promise to read it. You can turn to page 981 if you're following along in your pew Bibles. Again, we'll be in Philippians chapter 2, verses 19 through 30, which our brother Josh just read for us. Of course, this whole book of Philippians is a reminder that in order to be about the mission of God, it can only come through the overflow of delight in Christ. After all, Paul is writing from prison, And yet he's filled with joy. It's mentioned countless times in this short book. And he has joy even in these darkest moments, as we should as well, because the Lord is working for the triumph of his kingdom through the preaching of Christ, even in times of adversity. And if you're trying to get a handle on the book of Philippians, might I suggest that the Apostle Paul's thesis for the book is given to us in chapter 1, verse 27, where he says this only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of christ so that whether i come to see you or or am absent i may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind striving side by side for the faith of the gospel so the apostle paul would have believers arm in arm in the trenches together working for the cause of Christ in the world and doing so with great joy and mirth. Well, how are we to do that? And that's really where it comes down to. And we saw last week in chapter 2, Pastor Ricardo walked us through verses 14 and following, that this comes about as we do all things without grumbling or disputing, easier said than done that we may be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, among whom we shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life. And the apostle goes on from there. But if you're anything like me, you need a practical example. When we practice as a worship team, before I can sing a song or even be able to play it, it's not enough for me to just be able to sight-read The sheet music. Those of you who can sight, read, lead sheets, my hat is off to you. I need to hear a recording first. I need an example. Uh, In my day job, I help build websites for people and do various other things. And I was talking to a client a, a weekend or two ago, and specifically the question was, what are some websites that you like, right, so we can build to spec? I need to see an example of something. So in the Christian life, many of the same things hold true. It's not enough to dwell in the realm of abstractions. We need to see these things practically fleshed out in people's lives, and God knows this. And so in Scripture, he gives us case studies and models and exemplars after whom we can fashion our lives as we watch them follow Christ. Well, in chapter 2, Paul gave us the example of Jesus. He gave us this Christ hymn, In chapter 2, where Christ veils his glory, assumes a human nature in order to add that to his divine nature, he takes the posture of a slave, he dies an ignominious death on the cross, and he's raised in power to receive cosmic and universal worship. Amen? But the problem is that in our flesh, we often read those words and think, well, that's great, and yes, I'm to have the mind of Christ, but that's Jesus. Now, surely God wouldn't expect the same level of humility from little old me. But he does. And yet, because the Holy Spirit that inspired scriptures such as this epistle here knows that we're prone to let ourselves off the hook in that way, not only does Paul give us Christ as an example, he also gives us two more virtuous men to model our lives after men who are like us. That is, that they're sinners. It's these two men that Josh read about just a moment ago, Timothy and Epaphroditus. Timothy, an exemplary pastor, and Epaphroditus, an exemplary missionary. Paul loves the church in Philippi, and so he dispatches Timothy and Epaphroditus to be encouragements to this local body. So again, starting in verse 19, I'll read the text again for us, and then I'll pray, and we'll dive in. To the word this morning. Verse 19. This is the word of the Lord. I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon, so that I too may be cheered by news of you. For I have no one like him who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare, for they all seek their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. But you know Timothy's proven worth, how as a son with a father he has served with me in the gospel. Therefore, I hope to send him to you soon, as soon as I see how it will go with me, and I trust in the Lord that shortly I myself will come also. I've also thought it necessary to send to you Epaphroditus, my brother and fellow worker and fellow soldier, and your messenger and minister to my needs, for he has been longing for you all and has been distressed because you heard that he was ill. Indeed, he was ill. risking his life to complete what was lacking in your service to me. Father, as we come before your word, these ordinary seeming words where Paul describes the circumstances of visitors he wants to send to this church and his own circumstances under house arrest in Rome, we do recognize that though this is a human letter, It's also superintended by your Spirit's work of inspiration such that the words on this page are your words. No less are these your words than when we hear in the Old Testament that the prophets would begin by saying, thus says the Lord. And so because these are your words, we ask that you would do your work this morning through them that you would give me words to say and utterance to unfold the meaning of your word and anything of me would be forgotten and lost, but that which is of you would remain and bear fruit and that you would affect obedience and faith in us through this text. And we pray in the name of your son and for his sake. Amen. Amen. Well, in my time this morning, I want to distill the example of these two men for us. Down to this. If you're a note taker, our thesis this morning, our main idea, is that the joyful, mission minded Christian cares for Christ's interests, Christ's people, and Christ's soldiers. Again, the joyful, mission minded Christian cares for Christ's interests, Christ's people, and Christ's soldiers. And we'll unpack each of these as we proceed. But notice that Paul hopes in the Lord in verse 19 at the beginning, to send Timothy soon. He uses this phrase, in the Lord, twice here and then again, in regard to how they should receive Epaphroditus in verse 29. In other words, Paul's desires here, this is not just him throwing something out into the ether. No, Paul's desires are in sync with the Lord's will. They are submitted to the sovereign, providential care of God. And so Paul wants to send Timothy. We should also recognize that the Lord in Paul, the spirit of the Lord Jesus Christ at work in Paul, also wanted to dispatch this man Timothy to this church for their upbuilding and edification. So in light of that, we should ask, why? What's so special about Timothy? And in this, we'll also see our first point. Our first point is this. That the joyful, mission-minded Christian cares for Christ's interests, not his own. The joyful, mission-minded Christian cares for Christ's interests and not his own. And we see that that's true of Timothy as well. Verse 20, for I have no one like him who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare. For they all seek their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. But you know Timothy's proven worth, how as a son with a father, he has served with me in the gospel. So Paul says, hey, I'm sending Timothy. Listen, there is no one like this guy. You've got to meet him. Now, we kind of know deep down how selfish we all are. If you were to take the pie chart of how you spend your time... How much of that, even your normal morning routine or evening rituals, how much of that revolves around some degree of self-care? The stay-at-home moms in the room are like, not me. But for the rest of us, our default setting is that of self-interest. Most of what we do in some way relates back to serving ourselves. Not Timothy. He doesn't pursue his own interests. Like me, I need to have the exact same routine, the exact same rituals in order to feel like a whole person, right? And if I miss my coffee, if I don't sit in that same chair and do the same reading each morning, you don't want to talk to me. I'm not in touch with my better version of myself. But Timothy is completely consumed with the things that, not that he cares about, but that his Lord, Jesus, cares about. Paul says that his worth is proven. It's been uh, tested and shown to be real. He never left his mentor Paul's side. And when Paul's trying to describe Timothy's loyalty, the language that he reaches for is that of a son apprenticing under his father's tutelage, working in his dad's shop. Those of you fellow fathers like myself, you know the pride that comes when your son works effectively with you on a project And that's the same pride that Paul takes in Timothy here, like a son with a father. That's how loyal Timothy is to the work of Christ. But notice when he says there's no one else like Timothy, or specifically, I have no one like him in verse 20. Well, who is he contrasting Timothy with? There's a couple of candidates. In chapter 1, Paul talks about these insincere gospel preachers. These people who, out of pretense, are preaching Christ in order to uh, afflict him in his imprisonment. And yet he rejoices that either way, Christ is preached. But if that's true, Paul wouldn't have said, I have, because these aren't Paul's co-workers. These are outsiders to Paul and his ministry. In verse 3, excuse me, chapter 3, Paul warns about the dog's The evildoers, that is, the Judaizing heretics, those who believed that circumcision was necessary for salvation. And we can include in that group anyone that puts sacraments or rituals there as a requirement for salvation itself. But he's not talking about them either. These are people that are outside the faith, after all. Paul wouldn't have said, I have, and referred to these people. Paul is talking about his missionary team his band of co-workers the contrast between timothy is not with heretics over here and hypocrites within the church rather the contrast is with other missionaries men who had worked for the cause of christ who would have sincerely said that they desired to see the gospel advance throughout the world they were probably already involved in ministry in some way That's the class of individuals Paul is comparing with, and yet with each and every one of them, there was a pebble in the shoe, there was a pinch of leaven that rendered their work useless to Paul. And it was the fact that they had self-interest. It neutralized their usefulness such that when Paul thought, now who do I send to Philippi, they didn't even cross his mind. Only Timothy came to mind. How many of us make ourselves useless to the Lord because of self-interest? John Calvin, the reformer, who himself was well acquainted with self-denial, with physical discomfort and suffering as he served the Lord in his generation, he wrote this in his commentary on this text. This is about the excuses that we use. Just hear these words. See if they resonate for you as they do for me. From this, it appears, how great a hindrance it is to Christ's ministers to seek their own interests. Nor is there any force in any of these excuses. And he lists some. I do harm to no one. I must have a regard also to my own advantage. I'm not so devoid of feeling as not to be prompted by a regard for my own advantage. He says, none of those excuses matter. He continues, for you must give up your own right if you would discharge your duty. A regard to your own interests must not be put in preference to Christ's glory, or even placed upon the same level with it. In order to be useful to the Lord, we must be more concerned with things of Him than with our own affairs. Brothers and sisters, let us beware of the hundred little excuses that creep into our hearts, saying, well, I deserve to have this. I need this for me right now. Whether the thing that we're justifying is overtly sinful or if it's something that's neutral or even good, but out of proportion with the other priorities of our lives. Let's take all of those things and lay them before the Lord. So Timothy was concerned for Jesus' interests. We ought to ask what those are, though. What are the interests of Christ with which Timothy was so concerned? That leads us to our second point, which is that the joyful, mission-minded Christian cares for Christ's people. We see this in Timothy and in Epaphroditus, that they cared not only for the interests of Christ, but for the people of Christ. Notice the connection between verses 20 and verse 21. Verse 21 says, For they all seek their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. Implicit is the fact that Timothy does pursue the interests of Jesus Christ. But what causes him to say that? After all, verse 21 begins with four. He's building on the preceding thought. So look at verse 20. I have no one like him who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare. The translation is that Timothy is concerned for the interests of Jesus In that, he is concerned for their welfare. But who is they? Who is the your here? Not to put too fine of a point on it. Obviously, it's the Philippians. But each of these you words here are plural. This is the problem with English. We don't have an agreed-upon plural you. We've got yin's, we've got y'all, we've got you's guy's. But nobody has ever agreed in modern English what the plural of you should be. So unfortunately, some of those remain untranslated in Scripture. But you've got to recognize that these are plural yous. Timothy is concerned for the church. Not just people in general. Not just the abstract idea of Jesus' cause in the world. He's concerned for a local congregation, the church in Philippi. And same throughout the text. See, it's one thing for us to say that we love the Lord. The test of that abstraction is how it works itself out in our relation to the people of God. Do we love Christ's people? It's a barometer of our love for Christ himself. It's no good to be heavenly minded but not to care for his earthly body. The third century Latin bishop Cyprian of Carthage said this He can no longer have God for his father who has not the church for his mother. See, we may or may not be in a season of life in which we can commit to a lot of the church's programs. That's okay. That's not what this is primarily speaking to. The Lord knows our hearts. The question is not about the church's program, but our posture towards the church's people. Can we say with David, as in Psalm 16, 3, as for the saints in the land, they are the beautiful ones, excellent ones, in whom is all my delight? Do we delight in the saints? Or in Psalm 22, 1, can we rejoice when they say, let us go to the house of the Lord? Do we look forward to the fellowship of God's people? Do we long for it? Or is it an afterthought in the arrangement of our weeks? Do we miss church when we miss church? Or do we carry on about our business and before we know it, three or four weeks go by, I shouldn't get back there. Do we love the people of God the way that Timothy and Epaphroditus did? Our third point And the one on which we'll dwell is that the joyful, mission-minded Christian cares not only for Christ's interests and for Christ's people, but for Christ's soldiers. The joyful, mission-minded Christian cares for Christ's soldiers. And that's a word selected intentionally. We should sit up straight when we hear that word, soldiers, right? The word is used in the text here. Let's take it seriously because the language Paul uses shifts from language of aspiration, as in verses 19 and 23, I hope, to language of necessity. I have thought it necessary, verse 25, to send to you Epaphroditus. So this is soberingly serious for the Apostle Paul. And notice what he says about this second fellow, Epaphroditus about whom, compared to Timothy, we know relatively little. If you want to know more about Timothy, read the books of First and Second Timothy, read the book of Acts, even read Between the Lines in the book of Ephesians, because that's where Timothy was a pastor. We know a lot about Timothy, not so much about Epaphroditus, but Paul says this about him. In verse 25, he calls him, my brother and my fellow worker and my fellow soldier. Notice that escalation. Yes, he's a Christian brother. We're brothers in Christ. That's a given. But not only that, he's also a fellow worker. He's not sitting on the sidelines. He has skin in the game, in the work of ministry. But not only that, he's also a soldier. Paul says to Timothy, 2 Timothy 2, four, that a soldier does not entangle himself in the affairs of this life, but shares in the sufferings of Christ. That's Paul's definition of a soldier. Somebody that's actually taken fire in this gospel combat. He's not just enlisted in the fight. He's in the trenches. He's in the foxhole with Paul, who's writing again because he's under house arrest for the cause of Christ. Epaphroditus has been there with him. And he further calls him Your, referring to the Philippians, your messenger and minister to my needs. Now that word messenger, we could translate in various ways. The word is the same word as the word apostle there. Now we're given 12 apostles in scripture. Jesus sends out 12 apostles who represent him. But that idea of sending an official representative or emissary is something that churches can do in an analogous way. When a church... Commissions a missionary, a church is sending out that person, laying their hands on them with their authority. Not that they're an apostle of Jesus Christ directly, but they are sent out under the authority of that church for a particular mission. Epaphroditus is a missionary or an emissary, an ambassador, a sent out one on behalf of the Philippian church to do what? What's his mission? To minister to Paul, to join him in his work. To do what Paul says in verse 30, to complete what was lacking in your service to me, which by the way, there was nothing wrong with the Philippians' service to Paul. It wasn't that it was in some way morally deficient, but rather there's only so many things you can do to love a person from afar, right? If you really want to show that person you care, it's got to happen face to face. We learned that through the pandemic, didn't we? And so for the Philippian church to complete their love, for the man who planted their church, the Apostle Paul, they had to send someone in person to minister to his needs. But then he fell ill. And as happens to us so often, nothing reveals the heart of a person like the way they are when they're cast upon their sickbed, right? All of the filters are off. J.C. Ryle says this in his booklet on sickness. He says, Many a creed looks fine on the smooth waters of health, which turns out to be utterly unsound and useless on the rough waves of the sickbed. The storms of winter often bring out the defects in a man's house, and sickness often exposes the gracelessness of a man's soul. Those of us who've suffered from any serious illness, we know what that feels like it reveals what type of person you truly are when the filters come off and so we probably would have forgiven Epaphroditus if when he fell sick near to the point of death Paul says if he had revealed a little bit of that flesh that remains in all of us as Christians and yet it revealed how devoted Epaphroditus truly was Epaphroditus cared more about the church than he even cared about his own state. It says, For he has been longing for you all and has been distressed, not because of the sickness, but because you heard that he was ill. He cared more about their faith being rocked or reeled in some way by the news that he had fallen sick than he did about the comforts of his own body. Can you imagine that kind of fierce devotion to the interests of Christ and to the people of Christ. And yet, God healed him. Lest Paul should have sorrow upon sorrow, verse 27. He had mercy on Epaphroditus and mercy also on the Apostle Paul. And here we ought to stop as well and think is that a little bit of a selfish perspective for Paul? Epaphroditus is sick. And he's healed, and that's an act of mercy on Paul. I mean, Paul, like, it's not about you. It's like Epaphroditus is the one who got healed here, right? Is Paul thinking too much about himself. But consider it from the perspective of heaven. Paul had been through so much. You can read in Second Corinthians all of his beatings, his shipwrecks, the ways he had been persecuted for his faith. And we are called to suffer for the gospel. We're to pick up our crosses and follow Christ, whether we're missionary senders or goers, whether we're here or whether we're at home. But Paul looking, rather, God looking down from heaven on Paul. God is not a grim, miserly, rough taskmaster. He's not a drill sergeant shouting at Paul to suck it up, buttercup. He's not that way. He's compassionate and merciful. In Matthew eleven twenty nine, 29, Jesus says that he's gentle and lowly of heart. And yes, we have to carry a load. We have a cross to carry, but his yoke is easy and his burden is light, Matthew eleven thirty. 30. And so God had mercy on Paul. It reminds me of the mercy that God showed to the prophet Elijah. Remember his victory in 1 Kings 18 on Mount Carmel prophets of Baal are all put to shame because Baal doesn't answer their prayers, but God answers the prayers of Elijah. And all of the prophets of Baal are slain. And that day, all of Israel knows that there's a God in Israel, and it's Yahweh, the Lord of hosts, the one true and living God. But then Jezebel sends him on the run. She promises to kill him. And he goes from this spiritual mountaintop of victory to the valley of despair overnight and he's ready to die and in first kings 19 verse 3 it says elijah was afraid and ran for his life when he came to beersheba in judah he left his servant there while he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness if you want to cheer up do you ever go to the wilderness that's not the place where you go when you want to cheer up necessarily to a desert waste place he came to a broom bush sat down under it And prayed that he might die. I've had enough, Lord. He said, take my life. I'm no better than my ancestors. And then he lay down under the bush and fell asleep. And at once an angel touched him and said, hey, suck it up, buttercup. That's not what the angel said. An angel touched him and said, get up and eat. And he looked around and there was by his head some bread baked over hot coals and a jar of water. And he ate and drank and then lay down again. Then the angel of the Lord came back a second time and touched him and said, okay, seriously, enough enough rest. Come on. Come on. And he said, get up and eat for the journey is too much for you. So he got up and ate and drank. The Lord gives mercy to his servants who are busy and tired pouring themselves out in his service. Whether it's the restoration to health of a man that you regard as a brother in arms, because the Lord knows that the Apostle Paul needed that fellowship, that friendship, or whether it's something as simple as a nice meal and a nap, in the case of Elijah. God, yes, calls us to suffer, but he also knows what we need to endure. And so because Paul had such high regard for Epaphroditus... He gives the Philippians instructions on how they should regard such courageous men, traveling ministry workers like him. Look at verse 29. So receive him in the Lord with all joy and honor such men. For he nearly died for the work of Christ, risking his life for what was lacking in your service to me. Okay. He sounds worthy of honor. So how? What does it mean to receive people like him in the Lord, there's that phrase again, with all joy and to honor such men? What type of honor? We bring them up on stage, we give them a financial gift. What, what does that look like? Speaking of a different group of missionaries, the Apostle John says this in 3 John verses 6-8. through 8. He says, You will do well to send them on their journey in a manner worthy of God. For they have gone out for the sake of the name, accepting nothing from the Gentiles. Therefore, we ought to support people like these, that we may be fellow workers for the truth. What's more, Jesus even says in Matthew 10, when he sends his disciples out on mission, that whoever gives to these little ones, these sent out disciples, so much as a cup of water, that they will share in that preacher's same reward. Matthew 10, 42. So if you want to be rewarded the same way a prophet, a disciple, a missionary is rewarded, if you want to share in his reward, if you want to be a fellow worker for the truth, then let's not miss this opportunity to honor those who are in our midst, those who have gone out risking life and comfort for the cause of Christ. Say hi to people like Kim Knopf that are here today who have spent many years pouring themselves out in gospel service in lands far away. In a few weeks, we'll have John and Bev return with Live Global to talk about the work happening in South Asia. Let's honor them well. Later this fall, we'll have our restricted access missionaries in East Asia also join us in November. Honor them well. Take advantage of the opportunity to show them hospitality, to speak with them, to let them know that you're praying for them. Because whether we're the ones who go or whether we're the ones who receive Christian love like this is costly right it was costly for Epaphroditus it nearly cost him his life it was certainly costly for Paul writing from imprisonment C.S. Lewis in the four loves says this there is no safe investment to love it all is to be vulnerable. Love anything and your heart will certainly be wrung and possibly broken. If you want to make sure of keeping your heart intact, you must give your heart to no one, not even to an animal. Wrap it up carefully round with hobbies and little luxuries. Avoid all entanglements. Lock it up safe in the casket or coffin of your selfishness. But in that casket, safe dark, motionless, and airless, it will change. It will not be broken. It will become unbreakable, impenetrable, irredeemable. The alternative to tragedy, or at least to the risk of tragedy, is damnation the only place outside of heaven where you can be perfectly safe from all the dangers and perturbations of love is hell. Again, that's C.S. Lewis in The Four Loves. And so to love as Christ has loved us, to love his interests, his people, his soldiers, is risky. To borrow a different Lewis quote, it's not safe, but it's good. So in closing, we typically wind down our time by speaking first to the unbeliever in the room and secondly to the believer, which is most of us. But this first point to the unbeliever, don't miss this if you are a believer. This really is relevant to everyone. Pastor Ricardo challenged us last week in light of the gravity of these exhortations to do nothing with grumbling or disputing right to be poured out for the sake of the gospel to honor people that do the same what compels timothy and epaphroditus to live that way what compelled paul to live that way how great is their lord how valuable must their view of christ be in order to compel them to live so sacrificially Jesus Christ is worth it. Whatever it is that he's challenging you with, he is worth whatever price you could possibly pay to have him. There is no greater privilege in the universe than to know him and to make him known. Just consider for a moment some of the titles in Scripture for Jesus to show his great worth. This is just a sampling of the titles that he has in Revelation. That's one book of scripture alone. Jesus is the faithful witness, Revelation 1:5. The firstborn from the dead, the ruler of the kings of the earth, the alpha and the omega, verse 8, the beginning and the end, the son of man, verse 13, the first and the last, verse 17, the living one, verse 18. He who has the sharp two-edged sword, chapter 2, verse 12, the son of God, 2:18. He who has eyes like a flame of fire and his feet are like burnished bronze. He who is holy and true, three seven, the Lion of the tribe of Judah, five five, the root of David, the Lamb that was slain, and the King of kings and the Lord of lords, Revelation nineteen sixteen. He is the one who suffered for sinners under the just penalty of God and rose victorious over sin, over death, over Satan over the demons, over hell itself, to sit enthroned in heaven as Lord of lords and to command all nations to turn to him for life and repent. He alone has the power to forgive sinners and grant them to live and reign with him forever in his kingdom because he's already suffered the punishment that they deserve for their sins. He has the authority now to acquit sinners because he's the judge. So turn to him for salvation if you don't know him. And if you do know him, but he doesn't feel that big to you, then consider his great worth. Consider what are these lesser interests that are clouding your view of him. If he's not the object of your longing, of your desires, such that you're denying yourself and pursuing the knowledge of him more and more each day, then perhaps you do not truly know him as he is. And finally, for those of us believers here today, the application of this text is pretty clear. We should pursue the interests of Christ. We should love his people. We should honor his soldiers who risked their life and comfort for him. But I want to draw our attention to verse 30. For what did Epaphroditus nearly die? For the word of Christ, Perhaps. <clears throat> He suffered because he happened to be a Christian. He happened to hold to the word of Christ, the Christian faith. Is that what it says? For he nearly died for the work of Christ. For his word, yes, but specifically for the work of Christ. So let me simply ask you, brothers and sisters, are you committed, even at risk to yourself, to the work of Christ. Again, not just the programs and activities of the church as helpful and important as we believe those things are or else we wouldn't do them. But the work of Christ doesn't end at those glass double doors. I met a courageous woman this week. I got an email forwarded to me from her. Her name is Heidi. She attends a church in Lancaster along with her husband and children. And on a regular basis, she goes faithfully to Planned Parenthood in various locations across central PA to pray there that women and children would be saved, both their lives and their souls. She pleads with the fathers and mothers to save the lives of their children. She shares the gospel with these people right there on the front lines of ministry. But lately, the Lord has been convicting her more and more about the importance not only of going there to the place where people are being led to the slaughter and where murder is happening, but also to appeal to our local authorities. Because according to Romans 13, the civil magistrate is God's deacon, his servant to administer justice, which means that governments, whether they acknowledge Christ or not, are accountable to him to administer justice. But someone's got to tell them that and call them to account To stop the scourge of such evils as abortion in our midst. She fired off an email looking for people who would be willing to join her at the York City Council. No one she knew committed to going, no one was available. She went alone without her family. She spoke there, her heart beating out of her chest. She prayed in the background silently while other people spoke in a city that she doesn't live in that she's really never spent much time in risking her comfort in a radical way to be about the work of Christ because of her love for him and because of her active obedience many gospel seeds were planted the work that the lord calls you to do might not look like heidi's it might maybe you're called to go even farther to an unreached people group and to preach Christ and risk everything or maybe your evangelistic mission is as close as your own breakfast table. Worshipping together as a family, evangelizing your children, not buying any of this nonsense about not imposing your religion on your children. If you know Jesus Christ, impose away, lovingly impose away. Or maybe it's influencing your grandchildren for Christ, maybe their parents don't know the Lord. Whatever it is that the Lord would call you to do, if it's educating your children at home or in a Christian setting or to start a business and build wealth, to pour that back into the kingdom and into the mission, whatever you do, just recognize that that love is indeed costly. It comes at a risk. And yet it's worth doing. See, we're too comfortable, aren't we? We really are. I am the worst at loving comforts to quote the uh, eminent theologian in the Shawshank Redemption. You need to get busy living or get busy dying. Amen, church? And we'll sing in just a moment these words, maybe more spiritual words, penned by Martin Luther. Let goods and kindred go. This mortal life also. The body they may kill. God's truth abideth still. His kingdom is forever. Brothers and sisters, let us heed the examples of these two virtuous men, Timothy and Epaphroditus, and let us have something of the same love for the Lord that they had. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we thank you for the example of these men who served you, whose names are inscribed, written for us, that 2,000 years later they're in your Hall of Fame, they're written in Holy Scripture for all of your people to hear about, to benefit from. Even when we don't know much about them, the one thing that's preserved for us is their commitment to you. Stir us up, Lord, we pray, to love and to good works. Work in us this zeal for your kingdom that it would overcome our inertia, our self-interest, our tendency to selfishness. Help us, by your spirit, to love your people and to honor those who serve you in such ways because we believe that you, our triune God, you are deserving of it all. We pray these things in the name of Jesus Christ, your Son and our Lord. Amen.